A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. Welcome to Marketing Today. I'm your host, Alan Hart, managing partner of Atomic, combining brand science and creative fire. Today on the show, I've got Jan Benedict Steenkamp, who's the C. Knox Massey Distinguished Professor of Marketing and Chairman of Marketing Department at the University of North Carolina Keenan Flagler Business School. JB, as he's known, just released his third book, Global Brand Strategy, Worldwide Marketing in the Age of Branding. This new book is a must-have for anybody managing a global brand or aspiring to be a global brand in today's world. On the show today, we talk about how global brands create value for companies, how to manage a global brand, and we leave you with four tips around making sure you have diverse leadership teams managing a global brand, clear accountability and metrics, local flexibility within a common framework, and how Frank Zappa really got it right with we're only in it for the money. Well, JB, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It is a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. So I hear uh, from data that you're ranked number one in the world on scholarly influence in marketing um, for the last decade, and that your work has received over 35,000 citations. Um, That's quite an impressive achievement, so congratulations. Thank you. I'm also curious, what led you to marketing? Well, um, Marketing is is the interface between the company and the customers. And 
I'm interested in activities that span boundaries. Uh, it's a bit like, I mean, I live in the United States, I've become an American citizen, but I was born in the Netherlands, essentially a spanning of the transatlantic boundary. And marketing is also um, such a boundary-spanning activity. And um, I was also inspired by what the late Peter Drucker once said. He said that the only two activities of a company that really matter are uh, innovation and marketing the other things are just costs and I, I kind of thought well you know that clearly illustrates the importance of of marketing and um, so I decided to go in that direction and I haven't really regretted it now your recent book global brand strategy worldwide wise marketing in the age of branding is why we're going to talk today and I'm I'm really interested, you know, why write a book on global brand strategy and why now? Well, I think um, when we look at uh, some of the key principles of the age we are now living in, and that would be that we, uh, first we live in the age of branding. Um, actually, wherever you look around us, you see brands everywhere. We are essentially exposed to brand kind of information thousands of time, times per day. That, by the way, was not, not, uh, that wasn't always the case. I mean, the branding era is quite recent, only since, let's say, after the Second World War. And when we look at these shows like, um, like Mad Men, you know, it is very clear, you know, what you see there in the early 60s when it starts. You know, brands really started to become relevant. Now they have become ubiquitous, not only in America, not only in Europe, all around the world. And that all around the world is the second principle of our age, and that is uh, globalization. Um, that has really taken off uh, dramatically in the, in the last uh, 30, 40 years, and it has expanded from the West to emerging markets in the last, say, 10, 20 years. And although globalization sometimes goes up and down, what we see is that Branding and globalization are two major developments. If you intersect these two developments, you have global brands. And that's essentially what, what, what inspired me to write that book. Now, then the point is, if there are already zillions of books out there, I mean, why write another <laughs> one? But actually, there isn't really a book around which analyzes global brand strategies, gives clear recommendations to, to managers how to tackle uh, certain things together with, with, with tools. So there is actually, uh, there is written quite a bit on branding, but there is written very, very little on global branding. So, you know, I'm a marketer and that's a niche in the marketplace and it's also something that interests me. Well, I was impressed by the book and how it's written because you're, you're right. It is written almost as a management tool or, or toolbox, right? You describe the theories, the practice, but also give managers um, things to be thinking about or, or checklists to be um, comparing themselves to or even surveys to, uh, to, to de deploy. Yes, I, I, did that on, I did that on purpose because... Um, you can read a lot of, of ideas and that is very useful, but managers often would like to have some practical tools to, to implement it. So I developed these tools um, over the years, working with companies and different situations to make them as user-friendly as, as possible. So that was indeed something that I really consciously set out to do in the book. 
we're talking about global brands. I'm wondering if you could give a couple examples, um, primarily to help us understand how you define what, what is a global brand. Well, to give examples, it is more, okay, we, we, it is where to stop. And think about global <laughs> brands like um, Ikea or Samsung or Pampers or Coke or Ford Motor, uh, L'Oreal. Emirates Airlines, BMW, Financial Times, Patek Philippe, uh, Porsche, Zara, H&M, Cosmopolitan, Huawei. These are all brands, you know, t- typically in the consumer, in the z- consumer realm. Right. But there are also very strong brands in the B2B. Uh, think about uh, Siemens, uh, IBM, uh, John Deere, McKinsey, uh, Caterpillar, um, Harvard. These are these are very strong brands in their own rights, and they are really B two B brands. So you find actually global brands in B two B, B two C, in manufacturing. You find it in services. You find it in about any industry. And so the examples that I just mentioned, you ask, okay, you know, say what would they have in common? Because they are all global brands. So what do they have in common? And in in my view, a global brand is a brand that uses the same name and logo, is recognized, available and accepted in various regions of the world and shares the same principles, values, strategic positioning and marketing throughout the world. And there is some international coordination of marketing activities. Now, of course, Every brand has some exceptions to this general point because there are, not every brand is positioned exactly the same way. And especially in China, brands often have a, a Western and a Chinese brand name because otherwise it is very difficult for people to read or pronounce. But my book is, is filled with examples of brands that, that you know, more or less actually fit into that, uh, that broad definition. I like that. One example I was thinking about, which I've, I don't think would fit your definition, although maybe it does today, uh, is like a, um, a Yum! brand portfolio where Pizza Hut, as an example, in the U.S. has been kind of a mass brand, I think is a category that you use. Um, mm-hmm. But in other emerging geographies, I think it had been, when it was initially launched in those geographies, seen as more of a prestige brand, somewhere that I aspire to go, which in the U.S. is kind of odd to even think about. But I think that mismatch in their value proposition begs, in my mind, Do you would that fit your global brand model or does it really need to share the same value proposition across, across geographies? Well, in an ideal world, yes. However, we are still in a world where there are very significant differences still uh, in income. And what you see is that what would be kind of a value proposition in one country, uh, IKEA would be absolutely like that in in Europe, in, in, in North America. It cannot have that value proposition in China because the incomes there are still so much lower that IKEA would be just because even if they have a low price, they would still within China be at the more expensive part. However, the, the interesting thing is that is not what the brand aspires to. The brand IKEA aspires to be the value proposition also in China, but given current income, that is not going to happen. Uh, not yet. 
But over time, that will happen. So there is a very unified brand proposition behind, the, uh, behind say, an IKEA or other ones. But yes, the execution sometimes will vary a bit between countries. Uh, uh, McDonald's is a good example, and also the Yum Brands, is that they enter China at a higher level simply because, let's look at an average price of McDonald's in the U.S., in dollars, in China is not, let's say, at the value level. It is actually, uh, you know, at a more expensive level. My prediction, though, is that in 20 years or so, as you know, it is already happening that McDonald's image relative to the in the market is declining in the sense that they are more moving towards a value proposition as the Chinese get richer. So you see, if, if let's say if we would put a complete straitjacket on a brand has to be exactly the same everywhere, then not even Coca-Cola would be like that because the sugar <laughs> right. content of Coca-Cola differs between countries a little bit and everybody would. You know, the point is, wherever I am around the world, I immediately recognize a McDonald's, even if it is in a language that I cannot read. I recognize a Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola bottle, a, a, a can immediately, like the way I see it. And the same with KFC, because yes, there is some difference in positioning, but everywhere there's Colonel Sanders. Right. Well, thank you for that clarification. I, 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 I think it makes perfect sense what you're describing. Um, you know, in the book, you also talk about how brands create value. And I'm wondering if you could share your framework. I believe it's called Comet um, around you know, how those brands are creating value today. Yeah, the, um, so I thought about that um, a, a lot um, because, well, first of all, as a marketeer, um, the most, let's say, logical way how to think about why would a company value global brands is because, you know, consumers or customers, you know, B2B also, uh, you know, many of them prefer global brands. And actually, that is true. But there is more to it because a lot of global brands, people don't really see them as global brands or they don't know that they are global brands. Take Heinz. You know, Heinz baked beans. Mm -hmm. If you ask an Englishman, they would consider Heinz baked beans to be one of the quintessential English foods. But, I mean, they may be aware that Heinz is American, probably, but they don't really care about it. They love the Heinz baked beans, but they don't care that the brand is global or not. And still, it adds value to the company. So I developed that in, in more detail in, in five dimensions, five ways how global brands provide value to a company. And, 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 and the first one is... Is, is the customer preference. And consumers often, not all, but many consumers have a preference for global brands. Um, you know, if a brand is successful around the world, it's, it's very, people kind of infer that it's got to be pretty good quality because, you know, a lousy product cannot be sold around the world. <laughs> right. And another way uh, why consumers prefer it is... Um, If a brand is associated with a particular favorable country of origin that is, you know, favorably perceived around the world, that helps build preference for the brand. So why, 
for example, uh, Volkswagen in 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 uh, in China uses the tagline "Das Auto." Now, with due respect to the Chinese consumers, but their knowledge of German is very limited. Why would they say something in German, which people don't understand? Only to indicate we are German. And the moment that country of origin, Germany, is very positive, at least when it comes to, say, cars or machinery, less, I think, when it comes to fashion, and, and therefore people prefer it and are willing to pay for it. Now that, But there is a second... Um, one and those are organizational benefits. Um, they have nothing to do with consumers. They have essentially to do as a com- as a company. It is a lot easier to manage when you have. Uh, can you rally all your activities around a global brand? Um, take an example like Zurich. Zurich is a, a very large uh, insurance company based in Switzerland. It had all local subsidiaries in America and in other places, and they all went their own way. They did a conscious rebranding effort to rebrand everything in Zurich, and the CMO of Zurich told me the main reason to do that is simply because before we could get no initiative in the company pushed through, because local brands foster a culture of localism, and there was no advantage then to be in a global company. So they felt that as a very strong... So they said, we don't do it much that for the consumers. We do it only to, to for our internally to, to make become more effective as a company. Unilever has found that if it concentrated its new product development efforts around global brands, it was able to increase... Uh, you know, essentially it pushed through rate of new product ideas to the market hundredfold. I mean, these are very wow. important things. Yeah. There is a third element, and the, I have chosen the acronym COMET so that you know people can remember it. Those are the marketing benefits. Um, let's look at something very simple as, for a global brand, you can pool resources around the world, and that means that you can, um, for example, sponsor those events that have high prestige, huge uh, huge viewership like the Olympic Games, like the Champions League, like the World Soccer, etc. Uh, you know, tennis tournaments that, does, that are watched around the world. But it doesn't make any sense for a local brand to sponsor that because the sponsorship is many millions. And, and it would only have effect in, in one country. For a global brand, you can reach an audience very effectively. You can also leverage... Um, just great global ideas um, globally. One of my favorite examples is um, MasterCard. You know, MasterCard has this famous campaign, um, uh, you know, which shows uh, unique situations, uh, you know, like a father and a, and a son together to the baseball match or something like that. And then um, it, it, it's... It's pay off is essentially that such moments, they are invaluable for everything else. MasterCard. Right. Now, that is, you know, the point is people say, hey, you know, that uh, is, is that such a great idea? Well, the point is, how do you sell credit cards? How do you get people to use MasterCard rather than something else? It's, it's uh, that pre- priceless campaign that has been developed in one country and been rolled out in other ones currently the value of mastercard is 46 billion dollars 
vested in the brand. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. And then two other ones were the economic benefits. Then we think about outsourcing, um, you know, producing it uh, economies of scale, but especially outsourcing to get it from a cheaper source. And the final one is um, transnational innovation, that you essentially innovate globally. You put global resources together to make better products. And especially because R&D costs are really exploding, you need to, and, and, and the demands of the market are getting ever higher, you need to pull these resources because otherwise you just cannot keep up the race. And that means that therefore, so along these comment factors is, I developed a tool also to analyze your own brand. How am I doing? Not every brand is doing great on every aspect, and that is fine. But if you are not doing great on about any of these aspects, then you are clearly under-leveraging the value that your brand can bring. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, the marketing landscape has changed quite a bit in the last a couple of decades with especially with digital um, and everything being digitized um, not just just digital tactics in terms of how we communicate but you take a chapter out of the book and address the digital age and how it's impacting brand strategy I'm curious you know how is it impacting um, and then what are maybe the words of wisdom or words of caution you know it has to be a challenge to write a book at, at, a, at a point in time when this is you know the future may be a slightly different. You know how how do how do we should we be thinking about digital age and building global brands? Well, I I, th I think Ellen, you're absolutely right. Um, any word that is being said about digital tactics um, is essentially already outdated the moment that you that you speak it, because somewhere around the world somebody has already made a new twist that could already weaken that particular point. So. For that reason, I, I, I very consciously focused on what I see as a number of five underlying trends that you see in the marketplace that are profoundly affected by the digital arena, regardless whether Facebook is, you know, going to succeed or it may be another one that's going to succeed or that Amazon will be replaced by still a better um, uh, other player. And these five basic trends, they have a profound impact on, on global brand building. And very briefly, uh, the first one is we see the rise of the, uh, the global digital sales channel. Essentially, what we now have is that every brand in 
principle can be global at the touch of a keystroke. Now that is something that is complete. We may now say, well, that is logical. Well, ten years ago, that absolutely did not exist. I would right. say five years ago, it was in its inf in its infancy. Now what you see is that that is rapidly giving new brands from the West and from emerging markets an, an ability to scale that they never had before. And, and a second aspect is that it allows much more than ever co-creation with your customers, um, especially through crowdsourcing, because co-creation There has been always some kind of co-creation going on. But now, through crowdsourcing, you can do it at a truly global manner with very efficient platforms. And these platforms may change, but the crowdsourcing itself as a concept, which is only possible through the digital channel, that will definitely stay. A third aspect is um, some established companies like Samsung and Volkswagen are still struggling with that a little bit, is the transparency of a global brand strategy. That is, that if your brand has a scandal somewhere around the world, you know, it is being, it is really getting transparent quickly because the world is much more transparent than it ever has been and that also means if a if a brand doesn't uh, say ch even charges prices very differently in one part of the world versus another part of the world that creates a lot of trouble and also resentment and and, and people just buying uh, in uh, in other places a fourth aspect is um the connectivity it, it You know, how many people are there on Facebook these days? It's, it's I think, uh, 1.7 billion or so and counting. And, but, you know, Facebook 10 years ago had only a very small number of people. What we are talking about in a period of 10 years that 1.8 billion people are connected, not all with each other, but are in connections with each other. Whereas, say, 20 years ago, how many friends did you have? That with whom you interacted, oh, the 10, right. 20. Right. right, right. How many friends does the average person have <laughs> on Facebook? Hundreds, hundreds. Yeah. Yes. And that means, Alan, that if I have an experience, positive or negative, whatever is going on, I'm going to talk with my friends about that. And so my experiences, positive or negative, are going to impact not 10 or 20 people, but Hundreds upon hundreds of people. And there is a lot of research that shows that for many people, for most people actually, what their friends think about the product is much more impactful than what a marketer says about the product. If a friend says his product sucks and the marketer says it is great, who <laughs> is the consumer going to believe? <laughs> Easy one. Easy one. Yeah. And, but the, <laughs> so, the, now I had an. Um, I had an example. I, I was buying. Um, I was buying an, um, a, a wallet for a for a close Chinese friend of mine, and uh, you know I bought just a few days ago a Burberry wallet. It was four hundred dollars, and I got it, and I kind of thought it did not look very good at all. But I was kind <laughs> of uncertain because you know it is Burberry, so it's gonna be pretty good, not? Then I looked up at the Nordstrom site. There were only two reviews. They were devastating. So bad. Based on that, I send it back. 
I also posted the review essentially saying, I mean, actually, I, I said I wish I had read the other reviews before, but this is very disappointing, it is blah blah, and so on. Now, the thing is, I haven't noted these other people, but that's another way. The connectivity also goes even through these product rating websites, and that means... This is something that sort of happened to me a couple of days ago, and, and I'm sure it happens to a lot of people, is that the brand manager is at best a participant in the dia dialogue around the brand. Mm -hmm. And at worst, he's completely left out. So that's, that's very different. That is something, again, that is only going to change, Alan, if, uh, if we all stop with Facebook and every other type of connectivity. But I don't think... That is going to happen. And the, the last thing is, and that's, uh, I think, has, advanced, uh, has the possibility of really revolutionizing things the next 10 years, is the Internet of Things, where machines talk to each other, think about self-driving cars, but also um, in B2B, where essentially uh, machines throw off information to, to their suppliers, and that is completely based on digital platforms this is really at the beginning right now in the next 10 years i think we are going to see a lot more about it and all these things have very very deep implications for existing global brands and, and new global brands as well as for the kind of marketing strategy uh, to support the global brand that firms can use and so i go deeper into those kind of implications as opposed to you know you should use uh, twitter rather than instagram which is relevant but in five years i'm sure there is going to be still another platform now, if you believe that brands reside in the minds of people, which I do, and I think you do, um, you know, it's even easier these days to get co-creation with the people that you're serving with your brand as a brand manager. But I've seen it gone really well and really poorly. I'm curious if you have any examples of how that co-creation, when to deploy co-creation or when not to. I, I noticed a couple new product development examples in the book. Yeah, the, the, let's say there are some examples um, where it where it goes really well. Uh, one of the things that I like a lot what uh, what Lego has been doing, the the famous Danish it's a toy great maker. Brand. It, you know, it is a great brand. And why actually come up all the time with all these new products yourself? What they have now built is a four step procedure for people to. Um, to submit their own ideas, then they need to get uh, a certain number of supporters to, to love your idea, and then Lego is gonna look at it more in more detail, and if it is any good, then they're gonna manufacture it, and uh, you will get uh, some royalty, I'm not sure whether that's gonna break the bank, but you are also recognized as the product creator. And this is great, because this is, I mean, a lot about, about toys is, is creativity. And, you know, essentially, you don't have to, to pay those people. And if you're a Lego enthusiast, like my, my older brother is, I mean, he has Lego and he's an engineer. He still loves to, to do things with it. You know, <laughs> you get the, the mind of these guys for free. And something that you might also like, uh, you know, in, in your background in the branding business is that um, it can help co-creation can help um, say with other ideas softer ideas if you will softer in the sense it not 
it's, it's, it's easily graspable, literally. Like Kraft had, um, uh, had these mini Oreo cookies. Uh, but actually, Kraft was struggling to give it its own identity. What is the difference between mini Oreos versus regular Oreos? And, you know, they worked on it, but... They actually decided to do some crowdsourcing with Iika, uh, which is a French company, actually really uh, pretty good guys. And, um, and so they crowdsourced it and they ended up um, with a campaign, a global campaign around the idea of, of bonding moments. So people could submit ideas, but also videos. And that gave the, 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 the impetus to, to this whole development of how to position something, how to get something different from what it was before. Um, but as you said, um, new product development, uh, where of course crowdsourcing has always uh, attracted um, a lot of uh, attention and co-creation in general. Um, when does it work and when does it not work? And... Um, the good thing is that actually there recently some work has, has appeared in which company experiences of about 20,000 new product development projects have been kind of condensed into a number of, of, of key insights that I discuss. And um, one thing is that experience has shown that customer participation in, in the co-creation uh, works well in the ideation phase. So in the development of the ideas, there you need to, the company is still searching what, what to do. And there, if you get inputs from your customers, that if you, if you do that well, that really leads to better success, better outcome. Another one is in the launch stage. In Okay, new product has been developed, launched in the marketplace. Companies often struggling with exactly how to do it, how to set the marketing mix. In the beginning, the product often needs to be tweaked a little bit because, you know, you learn from early experiences. If the company does co-creation at this early stage, you get first-hand feedback from your customers on usability, performance, and positioning that really makes a difference uh, in again in ultimate new product success it, it, somewhat surprisingly is that um, customer participation is more successful uh, in low-tech industries than in high-tech industries in, in high-tech industries actually the attract a lot of attention the point is not that high-tech industries could not benefit a lot from co-creation but because they are so much more complex that it is more difficult for them to get input that is really useful to them. Whereas in, you know, Lego is, you know, with due respect to Lego, it's pretty low tech. Right. It is a lot easier to give something that Lego would say, hey, you know, this is really a good idea. <laughs> it's going to be a little difficult, I guess, when we are developing a new computer chip. I, I suspect so, not that I right. know a lot about <laughs> computer chip manufacturing. Um, to things where actually um, where co-creation is uh, co-creation is more beneficial for smaller firms than for larger firms and for firms from emerging markets than from for firms firms in developed markets and that has a lot to do with resources firms in developed markets and bigger firms have more resources in principle to do it by themselves whereas 
The other ones, the smaller and the emerging market firms, they may not have the resources otherwise to do it. So these guys that often might not be really in the game without co-creation, now can jump into the game because they essentially outsource a lot of their R&D to the, to the co-creators. Fascinating. So I'm curious as we as we start to transition here, and I'm a you know think of myself as a global brand manager or influencer in some respects. You know, what are some key takeaways? There's a lot to wade into in the book, um, and I would encourage all of my listeners to go out and buy a copy for sure, um, because it's a reference book that you're going to go back to time and time again. But I'm curious, you know, if you step back from the all of the material in the book maybe a few takeaways that you want to leave people with yeah so when it when it comes to um, to global brand management so that that is um, um, say let's assume that you that you put a strategy you know develop the, stra the strategy but um, okay you know what is it uh, uh, Von Molke, already, Von Molke already said, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Uh, that's the German general. And um, so what are some in terms to, to manage the whole process, which is, as you say, particularly challenging? Um, let me just give a few uh, takeaways. Um, the first thing is that um, the best management system is to uh, have the leadership of the global brands, uh, have that in, in the, uh, the, the role of a top management team. A top management team, that is so the, 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 the ultimately the, the responsibility for the global brand re resides in a top management team that consists of heavyweights from, from important regions or very important countries. You know, very important countries would be thinking about the US or China or perhaps Germany or so. And it is chaired by a member of the C-suite who ultimately takes responsibility. So it's not only talking, ultimately he is responsible for the, for the, for the job. Um, that has been shown that in most cases that is the most effective way to 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 manage the brand and it is especially effective if the 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 the, the, the chairman has strong executive responsibility and if the team is really diverse in terms of functions in terms of gender in terms of nationality and and that is not meant out of some uh, uh, the political correctness or so that we have to call for diversity the point is it really helps if different people with a different background it can be different functional background it can be in terms of gender nationality is very important they come together you get all these perspectives together and those teams is overwhelmingly shown they reach better solutions so it really helps now the funny thing is that while uh, American companies, for example, and, and other leading multinationals are doing, um, qu you know, quite a good job when it comes to functional diversity. Um, gender diversity is something that, you know, is still somewhat under discussion that that is not where we would like it to be. It is the nationality diversity, which is really horrible. Right. So that is that if you look at the top leadership of most companies... That is the number of country, home country nationals is 
very large. In America, that is uh, over 85% is home country nationals. Uh, but that is, in, in, in China, it's 95%. So there, a lot still can be gained to, to bring in more nationals from other countries in top-level positions. The second thing that I would like to um, uh, emphasize is hold people accountable by quantifiable metrics and goals. So that is something that is often not done. So make the, the metrics and goals very quantifiable. Okay, what percentage awareness is your brand gonna, the brand for which you are responsible, what is that gonna be in this year, the next year, or whatever? Or in terms of market share, or in terms of profitability, but have very clear metrics which also allow you to, to see how the essentially brand performance improves over time. And um, a third aspect is that you need to have local flexibility. Um, you need to allow local managers to shine. And if th there are a lot of examples, and I found that a, a lot in my discussions with uh, people in China, that they complain, uh, rightly or not, that they do not have enough flexibility um, working for an American company, that too often it has to go the way that say headquarters say it has to go and they say well actually we have to adapt it to the local situation otherwise it is it is not going to work so we need to give local managers leeway to to adapt the strategy to the local context but to make sure that it is not going to be a chaos it has to be within an overall common framework so that is that what you have, and I, I develop an, an, an instrument for that that people can use is um, ultimately for a global brand to be managed effectively, you have to indicate for each element of the global brand strategy, like brand name, a logo, the target segment, uh, advertising execution, whatever, whether it is globally imperative, they say you cannot change this, like Coca-Cola does that with the brand name, etc., or the color. Whether it is locally adaptable within boundaries, you have to indicate the boundaries. Say pricing, for example, could be one of those things where you need to set boundaries. But within those boundaries, you know, local managers can determine the prices. Or it is locally discretionary. Essentially, you can decide whatever you, you want to do. But such... Such a matrix, I mean, not an organizational matrix, but the brand strategy kind of matrix helps managers to essentially understand what they can change and how much and what they cannot change whatsoever. It, it, it makes the marching orders much clearer and that often is, does not exist. And, and the final thing is, you know... Um, uh, Frank Zappa, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm of, of the age still that, you know, in my youth, <laughs> Frank Zappa was big. And uh, Frank Zappa had this uh, famous album uh, called We Are Only In It For The Money. And, uh, you know, there was, the, I think, 1964 with the Mothers of Invention. But so ultimately, a manager will respond to the incentives on which they are evaluated. So what you need is to align the incentives of the manager with the global strategy. 
Nou, you could say that is, I mean, how the hell could that not be the case? Well, a recent survey found among uh, multinationals, uh, American and others, that nearly 60% of the executives, they themselves said that the way how they were evaluated on their performance was not aligned with the global strategy of the, of the firm. <laughs> well, then it is not strange. If I am, for example, evaluated based on local market share in my country, of course, why would I care about contributing to global initiatives? I just want only to grow my market share and I want to spend as much money that I have on building the brand in my, uh, my market, even if my market is about saturated and putting in additional advertising or other kind of dollars is going to lead to very marginal increases in market share and it would be much better for the firm to essentially take the money generated in your country and invest it in another country where the growth prospects are a lot higher. I would fight that tooth and nail because essentially... I am being evaluated on my market share, so why the heck would I care about it growing somewhere else? Right, right. So true. So true. And it's everywhere, to your point, those, that misalignment. So it's, it's quite it, a... It is, <laughs> it, the point is, you can, when you think about it, you can say, well, how is it possible that those things would not be aligned? How can somebody, let's say, be that not smart? Well, 60% of the managers said... So this is not theory. 60% of the manager himself said it doesn't work in my case. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't take very long. I mean, if you can get people to be truly candid, um, in a nanosecond, you'll you'll find these misalignments everywhere yes. inside of an organization. You, what you, you just have to do is you have to guarantee anonymity and people become very exactly. candid. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, you put three people together and there's three different incentives, you know. <laughs> yes. So... And, and then what also might be of interest is how people perceive the incentive and how HR thinks that the incentive works and often also have nothing to do with each other. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Well, so stepping back, um, I just want to you know, step back and talk about you for a few minutes, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, you know, one, one of the main questions I ask everyone that comes on the show is, is you know, what drives you? What fuels your success on a personal level? And in my case, it's intrinsic motivation. And that is, so I really like what I'm doing. And um, therefore, for me, work is not, an, is, is not a burden. It is not uh, a way to earn money. Of course, <laughs> that's also, but that is, I really like what I'm doing. And I see opportunities say everywhere it is just it, 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 <laughs> that really drives me so um a couple of weeks ago i i landed at uh, beijing capital airport in in beijing obviously and i was walking there you know through the uh, the whole you know to the exit and i saw everywhere these billboards of global brands and with a lot of chinese etc but also um, western models in it etc and it kind of made me wonder okay you know why would they use western models here and i could come up with certain theories why that would be the case but i could also think you know what it, would it be more effective if they were, Chi were chinese models and what could a chinese company do you know, say in cosmetics, to essentially fight against the, the inherent strength that French companies have doing. Now that, so I may not always do 
something with it uh, be, because I mean something else happens, but because I really am interested in uh, the combination of managerial relevance and say academic rigor, and because of that, I I just I just like it. That keeps me what you that 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 keeps me going. If that drives me personally, in your words. Nice, nice. So, what? Uh, another question I ask is always: What brands, companies, or causes do you think others should be taking notice of? Um, I guess that's a loaded. Be, um, that's a loaded question. Asking a, a a brand academic professor practitioner. <laughs> yeah, I would say. Um, I mean, I could give many answers, which obviously would lead us too far. But a couple of things in terms in terms of cause. And I'm very interested uh, to see and, and expect to see more of corporate social responsibility um, emerging. I, um, you know, I'm not talking about the buzzword. I'm talking about real, uh, re real stuff. You see that, for right. example, uh, now playing out, uh, Paul Pullman, the CEO of Unilever, has always been very strong on that dimension. There was... The attempt by Kraft Heinz to acquire Unilever, that did not really work out too well. Um, there was criticism on Pullman. They said, you know, the marg your margins are too low. Uh, you might not be giving too much attention, enough attention to the brands as opposed to CSR. Um, I happen to believe that he may be really onto something which uh, uh, very good, um, but uh, is he one of the few, or is that going to be more important in the future? I expect it's going to be more important, but it is certainly a trend to be watched, and also whether that can be married with profitability or not. And... Um, that would be to me a cause which would be very interesting. A brand that I would find very interesting is, is Tesla. Um, Tesla has a market cap which is nearly as large as Ford Motor Company. And it produces only one hundredth of the numbers of cars of Ford Motor Company. So the Tesla brand name is strong. The, I, the, I don't think people can doubt that. However... Are they able to deliver that strong brand name with high quality? Uh, they manufacture now, I uh, think, less than 100,000 cars. They need to ramp up production dramatically. Can they do that? Can they become a mass manufacturer and retaining quality? Because that's not going to be easy. Now, that's going to be very important because the stock price, as it currently is, has essentially factored in everything that's positive about Tesla. If they do not deliver, what is that going to do? Because I'm interested always, ultimately, you know, the link between also brands and, 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 and stock price. And um, a, third as, a third thing that I'm, I'm, I'm following closely is, um, say, in, in, in car industry, the battle between software and hardware. Uh, who is going to be the, uh, on top in, in 10 years? Is that Google, Apple, or perhaps another company that we don't know yet? Or is it going to be BMW um, uh, or Chevrolet? Um, and that has to do with the uh, move towards self-driving cars. Um, if the self-driving cars are going to be the operating system, is going to be 
developed by Google. All the channel profits will go to Google and the, the big car brands will be relegated to essentially just assembly lines and not much more than that. The brands of those cars may be severely affected because if I'm in a self-driving car, you know, all the qualities that make a BMW special, you know, driving qualities, etc., are going to disappear because it will be automatically done for me, which means that a huge amount of brand value will transfer from the BMWs, the Audis, and the Chevrolets of this world to the software companies. Or are the software or the hardware companies able to develop the self-driving cars and appropriate all that value? I'm interested in that because it has to do with a lot of about brands. It is an industry that is interesting and it's also a society of great interest because car industry employs tremendous numbers of people in the US and elsewhere and the outcome of that battle will be very important for how the, the US economy will be looking in 10 years and nobody knows the answer and so I'm interested especially in things where I don't know the answer because if I know the answer already you know then it's not really a lot of fun Right, exactly. And that industry, to your point, I mean, the foundation of the industry and what it was built on is shaking. So it will be yes. interesting to watch for sure. Last question. Um, and, you know, we've talked a lot about what we should be thinking about as we move forward in the future with brands. But if any takeaways or, or last thoughts about the future of marketing, maybe as a function itself? Yeah. Um, how often has marketing not already been declared death? Dead? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, only every week. <laughs> yes. And every next week it is declared to be alive and well. Right. So for whatever reason, either marketing is continuously resurrecting itself, which would be a miracle, or, you know, perhaps all these, uh, all these uh, announcements of doom are a little overblown. I personally believe that marketing remains strong because for people there is something in terms of when it comes to imagery when it comes to say emotions if that would not matter at all we would all be uh, shopping at Aldi we would all probably be driving a car that is very functional, but not much more than that. We might all be having a fairly dreadful, but highly functional smartphone, etc. In short, we would not be humans. So I believe there is a, we are, the marketing field is, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic about it. What, however, what I would like um, marketeers perhaps in the future uh, more than at least some currently do is wherever possible quantify whatever can be quantified um, I, I encountered it also with the aspiring managers I mean MBA students when we do get cases etc you know they can talk very mushy about things and not at all wrong but at some point I said my friends you need to talk the language of dollars because that is what the C-suite ultimately cares about. So I hope that marketeers make, and, and, and some of them do it, other ones perhaps should do it a bit more, try to be more accountable in terms of how their marketing actions, brand building delivers um, 
uh, higher prices, uh, uh, higher profits, uh, higher brand equities, the dollar value of the brand, how it ultimately contributes to shareholder value. Because the moment that you speak that language, you get the ear and the respect of the C-suite. And that's for that very reason, in the book, I I have included two chapters where we are really talking about brand performance in in, in terms of dollars and, and how that contributes to shareholder value. Well, thank you so much. It's been a treat having you on the show. Well, it was my honor and thank you for your challenging questions. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.